Hello, good evening, and welcome to The Game is About Glory. I'm your host, Steph, and this week I'm joined by Simon, Gareth, and Milo. Hello, chaps. Oh, yeah. Hello. Hello, mate. Excellent. And here we are to talk about the return of the beautiful game to our beautiful club, in our beautiful stadium, with our beautiful manager, even with our beautiful manager, Antonio Conte, who has the best behind-ear smell of any manager in football, leading our beautiful club. Oh, I already said beautiful, didn't I? Our majestic club into the FA Cup fourth round battle for the first time and a Saturday night special at the New Lane. Did he find out that when the year ends in two, it's lucky for Spurs? I mean, we won the UEFA Cup in 71-72, won the FA Cup in 62 and 82, so why not? He certainly did find it is going to be lucky for Spurs when the year ends in two. And we'll be going through everything that happened in our 3-1 win under the floodlights in N17 on Saturday, a little later in the show. And as promised in our window last week, we will also take a deeper look at the January transfer window and all which comes with that as we analyse our two new signings, Rodrigo Bentecourt and Dejan Kulosevsky. I'm going to get absolutely corrected on that pronunciation by Simon. I would uh, expect nothing less. And you will also enjoy some particularly insightful observations, courtesy of our very own Super Swede. Uh, Cue some background ABBA for truly stereotypical oral cheese as we draft commentary of Eric Edmonds' screener, screamer at Anfield over the top. Anyway, enough of the cliches, right? Enough of that stuff. We're going to have a great old chat. But before we do, let's start with our intro question, chaps. And this week, well, I don't want to know because... Milo does these questions, so he wants to know, what's the worst haircut you've ever had? Simon, he wants to know what the worst ever haircut you've had is. Okay, so I had a hard time with this. I think it might have been when I was about eight years old. I convinced my mom to shave my head, except my bangs, where I proceeded to have just ten braids going down. Over my forehead. Oh dear. Uh, I would like to add, I had round glasses with horns behind them, oh. behind the ears. That's legendary, mate. That's legendary. <laughs> you imagine showing up on your hockey practice with that hairdo, mate. <laughs> imagine showing fair. up in your street with that hairdo would be probably my uh, my thought. <laughs> but uh, that's a legendary start. And Gareth, I'm sure you can't top that. I can't stop that. Um, I did have an experiment with sunning in the summer of 96, as I think most teenagers probably did then and went very peroxide for a few weeks. Um, but the worst one was the summer before that, when so I was 14 at the time, year nine at school. Um, it was very frustrated because my mum couldn't get me an appointment at the, I'm going to say barber, but actually it's hairdressers for another three weeks. And so I had a DIY job to try and trim the hair around the side and did quite a good job on the right hand side, but left hand side where I'm going across my body I didn't and it looked like I'd given myself an undercut on one side and that's the one blemish I had on my high school record where I had a letter come home about it you got a letter from the school about your crap haircut I think well I think there was so yeah well, there was there was um there's a real movement at the time about trying to stop kids giving themselves or coming into school with undercuts which was all the rage in oh. 1995 and I was one of the more sensible members of my school but... oh, I thought your headmaster might have been Vidal Sassoon or something I've never heard of anything like that to be honest the, the headmaster sending a letter about a bad haircut my type of school anyway sorry Milo as you were, as we were your worst haircut well I I did have an undercut in late 80s early 90s so long hair or long on top and then shaved around the sides but that came into fashion again or at least became more common again recently so i'm not sure whether that counts at the moment but yeah it was bad i so my my teens and 20s were a uh 
just one success, one long line of one bad haircut after the other. I think I went on to, a, say, I had long hair after that and then had a feathered kind of bowl cut after that. Oh, spectacular. I'd have paid, my, I'd have paid to see that. Are there any pictures? And I know I've destroyed them all. I destroy the evidence always. Um, but I think probably lockdown <laughs> one was probably the worst it ever got. I was very, very unlucky with, um, with the two COVID lockdowns here in that I was due a haircut as lockdown started both times. I was, I was ill the first time with COVID. And then the second time, um, I think as it was announced, I was going to run the, we've got a late, late night barb around here and I, I was going to run around the corner to, to, to get it cut straight away as it was announced and then thought better of it <laughs> and then regretted that decision all the way through so and I think that that second one was the one that um we we got to know each other through wasn't it the kind of last year last this time last year the first kind of four months I suppose of this pod my my thought my hair was getting more and more like a kind of eighties eighties footballer. Yeah, I didn't didn't like that. I mean, it's a it's a tough question for me to answer because I think there's two there's a parallel line of conversation to be had about my haircuts over the years, which is I always think they've been great, but they've actually been somewhat bizarre most of the time and possibly shit. Um, if I was personally evaluating, I think my finest hour was shaving the sides, leaving a big fluffy bit on top, and having a huge sort of plume of it down the back halfway down my back circa 1989 uh going in concert with my uh good friend uh jason newstead and james hetfield i was a uh, you know that was all the rage back then um yeah i, I and you i've know, had that haircut of course you have but anyone who had like that what you had at the front definitely progressed to that there's no doubt uh, i proudly <laughs> i proudly have had a mullet and i challenge anyone to deny that they've had one at least once. All boys have had a mullet at least once in their life if they're of our vintage. Uh, you put your never hand up, you're trying to protest. Never you never did. That means that you had the biggest one ever. That's all I'm saying. And I never destroy the evidence <laughs> and I routinely post pictures of my shit hair from my youth on my page. Maybe it's some form of self, self-flagellation. self I don't know. But this is, you know what? I'm not going to derail the pod any longer with talk of hair. We all know how that can go for me. Uh, I've been very good actually for several months. I haven't commented on it. So a cracking lead off question. But let's go to look back at the week that was and let's go to uh, something a little more sensible and serious. Net zero for the third year running. The club came top of the Premier League sustainability table. The club has also joined the UN race to zero, committing to halve its carbon emissions by 2030 and become net carbon by 2040. Top of the Premier League sustainability table. You'll never sing that, right? But anyway, it is nice to see the club putting the right foot forward for the planet in all seriousness it's, it's an excellent thing so good news international roundup time uh new boy rodrigo bentaker played 74 minutes against venezuela last tuesday uruguay won 4-1 with bentaker scoring a peach of a goal after one minute he also played 83 minutes in uruguay's 1-0 victory over paraguay the previous week emerson royale got sent off for two yellow cards in brazil's first game of the break against ecuador a game that ended in a 1-1 draw the red card meant that royale missed brazil's 4-0 victory over paraguay which is rather useful for us he got a bit of rest and relaxation r&r could have looked like rock and roll but he didn't do that he (laughs) got his feet up and got some rest his place was taken by someone called danny alves uh i don't know maybe one for emerging talent nerds to take a look at that guy i suppose uh davison sanchez meanwhile played both of colombia's games during the break both of 1-0 1-0 losses to Peru and Argentina. Papa Matasar played 13 minutes of Senegal's 3-1 victory over Burkina Faso to reach the final of the Africa Cup of Nations, which is actually being played as we record this pod, and I'm hoping someone will bark out what the score is in a minute. Mil-nil. Uh, but he started on the bench 
Nil-nil. Nil-nil, just going to penalties. Ten. Oh, there we are. You're going to get the result of the African Cup of Nations live on this pod. That's the sort of service we bring. Back to Papa Matasar. He's been making the bench for most of the tournament uh, up to that point after missing the first game with COVID. And, you know, we look forward to seeing him continue his development and back at the lane in the summer. Probably the most significant uh, news of the week from a Spurs point of view, actually, was the resignation of Steve Hitchin from his post as technical performance director on Wednesday. It brought to an end his second five-year spell at the club, previously being a scout here between 2005-2010 under Damian Camoli. Uh, you know, despite being seen frequently on the bench this season, you know, it does appear that Steve was sidelined a little since Paratici's appointment last summer. A couple of simple questions, chaps. First, first in, finger on the buzzer, is Hitchin Hitchin's resignation the final step in Paratici achieving full control of the footballing matters at Spurs? It feels a bit odd that he was kept on after Paratici came in, really. It must have been quite difficult, I think, for, for Hitchin to stay around and you know to lose a lot of responsibility for, for the areas he was leading on. He kind of got sidelined at that point, didn't he? And so whilst him and Paratici are meant to be um, you know, good friends and knew each other before, Paratici came into the club it always felt a bit odd that he was still around and that we were kind of one man too many so yeah I think it's probably the best for everyone involved um you know it's pretty clear that you know his choices of managers uh, or prospective managers uh list got binned as soon as Paratici came in and the signings that we've made since Paratici you know there's not a sniff of a Hitchens player really there since it since uh Paratici's come in so it's probably best for all involved that uh, that he moves on. I think my point on him is that I defy anyone who can say that they know exactly what his remit was, that they know exactly what his KPIs were and therefore whether he's been successful in doing it and perhaps more importantly, understanding what restrictions and limitations he had in his role. I mean, it's, it seems pretty clear that he's become marginalised or his, his role effectively has become redundant since Paratici came in. I mean, if, I think if you follow the chronology, um, Hitchens was still very close to Pochettino and really pushed for Poch to come back in the summer and the moment that wasn't possible which I don't was nothing to do with Hitchin um, Levy went down the route of getting Paratici in which said largely marginalised Hitchin and his role but um, there's this been there was a very good article about him on the in the Athletic last week that really spoke very positively about the way that he was received across the club across uh, a couple of previous managers actually and I'm sure he's very very good in his field and I'm sure he'll continue to be successful and to have good impact elsewhere I, I think ultimately um, it's easy to come to the conclusion our recruitment over the last four years has been shit and Hitchin has been responsible for recruitment so therefore it's his fault I think the devil's in the detail and there's probably a lot more to it than that but we may find out that there's been some, some really good bits of business that he's done or possibly there would have been some really good bits of business that, that could have been done um, that through no thought of his own didn't happen on that thing that we don't know that much about what happens behind closed doors we don't know if when Pochettino wasn't weren't not available and that was not happening that Levy and and Hitchens didn't take this decision together and that they, they had to make this uh, this uh, change and Hitchens might have been uh, on board with bringing Paratici on and then knowing that Paratici would take over basically uh, at what he's doing and uh, him moving on to something else. 
I think it's very clear, um, as you said, um, as you said too, Gareth, uh, that we, you know, we don't know the details. What we do know is that uh, Hitchin's probably being a little unkindly thought of by Spurs fans based on, you know, rudimentary uh, semi-knowledge as opposed to a full ticket grasp of what's gone on. Um, and, uh, you know, I think as is the respectful thing to do, we should wish uh, Steve Hitchin well and uh, obviously hope that for us, it turns out that Paratici's uh, now total control involvement works out for the club. I did have to laugh that I think a day after this was announced, there were some stories in the press about uh, PSG uh, inquiring about Paratici yeah, quite. For, for the summer to replace Leonardo. So um, I, I think on just one last thing on Hitchin, I think he you know, largely has been really unfairly thought of because of the um, I hate January comment on All or Nothing. And I think you know, what he said there was probably something that pretty much every manager, director of football and chairman in the, in the country agrees with and probably in Europe. It's just, you know, I think it's one of those things where because you don't have much exposure to them, uh, you don't know much about them, but one comment uh, completely slays them, and and it you know became it's a very still a very popular meme. It was it was trotted around in the middle of this week when he was announced he was going, and yeah, he's been slaughtered for it, and I think that's a little unfair, probably. And I would say just the irony of that is that we get less transparency when we act that way when we take a Levy interview and then just cut it up but cut it up and make it a meme or when we take something like that out of context and just and uh, it doesn't really help the situation wrapping up with Steve Hitchin and uh you know particularly making reference to what you said Milo I think that you know anyone who judges any of the club's behavior fully by the Amazon documentary is probably missing some pretty vital information because as we all know um you know Documentaries of that nature are extremely meticulously edited according to the taste of their directors. And perhaps you're right, Steve Hitchin was maybe done up or stitched up. So on to the victorious game at the lane against Brighton 3-1 on the Saturday night special. Let's just make it clear, guys. We'll avoid talking about the new boys in this section and we'll cover our first impressions of them in a Spurs shirt when we discuss the transfer windows. Yeah. So let's let's studiously dance around their performances as best we can in this look back at the Brighton game and uh, and we'll go from there. Oh, I guess we should just start with what we thought of the lineup. I mean, you know, let, let me ask you, Gareth, what did you think of the lineup? Yeah, you were there as I was. I was, yeah. I think initially I was really pleased that Lloris was in goal. I had a, I had a fear that Gallini would, would play in goal, having played in the third round of the FA Cup and having played in the Chelsea second leg when, when Conte had said, well, he's our cup goalkeeper. And, um, you know, he, 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 is, he, he is an issue when he's played in goal. So I was pleased to see that Lloris was in and it showed there was a real intent to it. I mean, there, there wasn't too much to pick from, really. We, we knew that both the new boys were unlikely to start and more likely going to be on the bench. Um, there's not that many decisions to make, really, were there? It was, surprised that Dyer was was out because we knew that Skip and Tanganga were going to be unva- unavailable. We didn't know about Dyer, which I gather was just a, just a precaution. Mm. Um, so really the only choices were who was going to play in midfield and whether you know, Bergwijn perhaps might play instead of Kane. But I, th- I think pretty much you saw his strongest 11 that was available to him on the, on, you know, on the night. And that was reflected in the way that we played. It was a very strong performance. Yeah, Simon, let me bring you in on this, on an opinion of one particular player. I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, Christian Romero made his return. Um, Stunning, actually. It's been several months since we last saw him. What did you think? What do you think of his performance? Uh, I think he did good. I think uh, he was probably one of the best players on the pitch. He was strong. He was brave. I mean, I didn't like him in the middle of the pitch as much as some did. 
I think it's important to also see the mistakes he made. I think that uh, uh, I think the goal was basically on him. He kind of left his central position and and then didn't make the interception he was out there to do. And he also uh, slipped up to give um, um, Mapay mm-hmm. yeah. uh, his uh, free free uh, run at the goal, and we got lucky uh, right there. But I mean, overall, he's a world class uh, central defender, and he and he has been sorely missed. I I'd agree with most of that. I think um, I think he did okay centrally. It's quite interesting. I was looking at his stats earlier on and comparing him to Dyer in the position. So we didn't have the volume of passes uh, from Romero that you'd normally see from Dyer in that position. But he did have so the most accurate long balls of anyone in the outfield player in the side, apart from Kane. And so most dribbles of any starter. And uh, he had a 97.1% pass accuracy. Um, but admittedly, he was over that lower volume. I thought what was interesting is that his natural instincts don't really suit that central defensive position under Conte in that he wants to attack the ball. And, you know, it, it, Conte wants that uh, player to sit back. He, I thought he did quite well sometimes coming out and nipping the ball off someone and, and there was the cover there. But it's always a bit, a bit of a compromise. But what I did find interesting about that is it does mean that we've got options now. You know, we're going to come into the kind of transfer window later on. But I'm a little concerned about our lack of depth in central, the, the central central defensive position and the left centre-back position. And Romero playing there does give us some options now. I think one of the things I enjoyed the most about his performance was that he uh, somehow seemed to help set the tempo for some snap and thrust. I mean, he was really very, very sharp, very aggressive. And I felt that the I felt the whole side was very, very sharp and aggressive, uh, uh, you know, really looking to s- seek that ball, close down the Brighton spaces. Um, and, you know, I think that goes to our fullbacks as well. Um, you know, they are you know, two of the most important cogs in the Conti wheel. Um, I'm going to go back to you for a moment here, Milo, and ask how you think Reggie and Royale did. I thought they both did very well. Um, I thought Royale uh, particularly was excellent. Um, I think it was one of his best performances in a Spurs shirt. I think he's been a little unfairly treated or, you know, the comments about him over the last month or so have been a little unfair. I think people have been focusing too much on crossing well I was gonna say one element of his game but crossing and um and one game in particular Watford I think the the issue we've got at right wing back is not crossing at all it's being able to take on and beat a man and both of our wing backs there aren't particularly good at that I thought that he had a a good game he's strong he's athletic he was pushing forwards really well he was creating problems for Brighton I thought he had a I thought he had a really good game yeah, maybe part of the issue we've got there or, or you know, one of the things we're gonna have to look at is who plays against what opposition and you know, Brighton may gave him space to run into and maybe that's what suits him. And maybe Doherty is the one you play against teams that sit back a bit. Yeah, I thought um I thought he had an excellent game and Reggie was good really good as well. Gareth, let's look at Harry Kane together, shall we? fancy that I mean we've all been trying to work out his mental state and commitment to the club uh, from how well he's playing and uh, I gotta say last night he looked like he was really getting back to his best uh, I actually joked uh, to my mate when he missed that absolute sitter in the first <laughs> missed the sitter in the first half I looked I said yeah well I said he's missed the you know a chance that you and I could put in and he'll probably belt one from 25 yards ha 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 little did I know hey eh? 
So what did you think? How did you think he did last night? It looked like he was really having fun. There was literally seconds between him missing that chance, which, which to be fair, he just wasn't expecting, was he? And then taking the chance. And that was classic Kane. He wants the ball. His first intention is to drive towards goal. And then he clips one in from 25 yards and makes it look incredibly easy. What um, I say, what really impressed me was the way he played with his back to goal. So a lot of the times when I've seen him play this season, he's actually been out-muscled by centre-halves that in in previous seasons, he's just been able to get his body in the right shape. He's been able to hold them off and then he's been able to bring other players in. And he was playing against two pretty big central defenders yesterday in Webster and in Dunk. Um, and he, he managed to win the physical battle against both of them and technically um, that then allowed him to, to, to play and to do the things that he does really well. The second goal was a really nice, I mean, it was a Gary Lineker-esque goal, wasn't it? The the second one that he got. Um, but I, th- I think you're starting to see a player who looks, looks more confident, um, who looks up to speed of things physically. And I think that's going to naturally click in with the uh, with, with the technical abilities that he had. I mean, just linking back to a previous conversation we've had, he's just had a haircut. And I always think Harry Kane plays better when he's just had a haircut as well. I mean, you, you will be more of, an, uh, more of an analyst on this than me, Steph. But um, I just think we look like um, Harry Kane, who is the player who's going to become our record goal scorer in 31 goals time. Yeah, he does always look, I mean, it's always good when he's got a little bit of a fresh Roy the Rovers cut going there, you know, Captain England and all that business. Like, yeah, that's, a good, that's a good observation. Yeah, very nice. Very nice indeed. Expected haircuts is the only stat you're interested in, isn't it, Steph? <laughs> that's absolutely correct. As a matter of fact, uh, I think that one of the <laughs> things I'd love to know is how much of an influence on the haircuts and the first team Scott Antonio's had. None of them look shoddy, do they? They all look pretty good. Yeah, Antonio had a trim during the uh, midwinter break as well. So there you go, Steph. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Well, look, I mean, we've discussed this in some detail. So there's a theory here and a tactical uh, awareness that we have that no other pod has. We're seeing a little sharper to the ball, a little sharper to the space, closing things down. Hmm. You, you know, you got less hair. That's what happens. So I've, I've taken this conversation into a bit of a rabbit hole, which I hadn't intended to. So <laughs> let, me, let me just pull it out again by um, bringing, to, bringing to the fore a conversation that Milo and I were having on the WhatsApp group where we'd looked at Kane's um, goals relative to the amount of chances that he was having. Oh, I and, thought you were going to say relative to the amount of haircuts he's had. <laughs> no, no, not relative to the haircuts, no. But this year, it was by Kane's standards, it's been a real freak that he's effectively, it's taken him twice the amount of chances to score a goal as it has done in, in previous seasons. And that's either a sign that he's suddenly lost the plot and forgotten how to score a goal or not, or that he was just going through a fairly prolonged dip in, in form. And what I've seen from him, certainly yesterday, and if I think back to the Leicester game as well, just before the midweek break, we look like he's reversing back to normal again. So I think we're going to find ourselves in a position where it will take him four or five chances will end up in a goal not the 12 that it has taken him for most of the season so far yeah we were creating so few chances under Nuno we <laughs> sorry I was Simon's celebrating Senegal winning the Africa Cup of Nations quite rightly we've got another trophy winner in the uh, in the squad haven't we yeah I, I think Kane was getting so few chances under Nuno and the kind of that was off the back of Mourinho last season where he was scoring you know a phenomenal number of goals from very few chances so it's been a funny period and I think what we're seeing at the moment is a return to a kind of normal service or what we're used to from Kane he's looked excellent this last month I think he's looked really good and he was great yesterday I agree and another thing that I do want to uh to mention and, and Simon hopefully you, you 
got some thoughts on this as well was uh, was Sonny's return which I thought you know he worked hard in the first in the first 45 to get into stride and get into the swing of the game and then I thought you know by by the early second half we were starting to see the old Sonny the the one that's going to hit some form and then crikey we nearly had a repeat of Burnley didn't we yeah I mean it's it's a tough one with Sonny because in one way he was instrumental to to the win yeah Drop really deep and helped out defensively. The system and especially that formation where yeah, three four three really demands that Lucas and him comes come down and with the with the wing backs overlapping. But it's not really his game. It's not really where he excels. I mean, the best games we've seen under Conte with Sonny is in the three five two. So in one way he was instrumental and he did it all important work, but we didn't see him in space as much. We didn't see him get his shots off and his chances off. He got one or two. He he had that heady, header on what I assume was a, a failed attempt at a lob from mm. Kane. I thought that looked like a slightly overhit cross, actually. But I thought, other than that, he looked he looked up for it. Mm. Just going to pick up on the um, Simon's comment about Sonny, uh, Sun being best in three five two, which I agree with. But I, I was just wondering whether we thought yesterday was our best performance under Conte in a three four three so far. I, I think it probably was. Yeah, yeah our standout performances have both both been three five twos. The uh, the Liverpool game and the Leicester game, and I think this was our best in a in a three four three. It was very aggressive and quite progressive. All right, chaps, what do we think of Brighton? Yeah, I'm, I'm really intrigued by Brighton, particularly under Graham Potter. And it was good to see them first off. But when I've done my notes looking at the game beforehand, they'd only lost once away in about 14 games this season, which was at Aston Villa. They've had really good draws at Anfield when they came back from 2-0 down. and They, they came back and drew 1-1 at, at Chelsea earlier. So they, weren't a, they, they were never going to be an easy team to roll over. And they had full motivation to really go out and, and put in a good cup run this year. Graham Potter said afterwards that... It wasn't one of their best performances this year, but he he gave Spurs the credit for that. So I think it's worth um, reflecting on that from our perspective that we've 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 come up against an opponent who are difficult to play against. We've come up with a solution, and say ultimately we had the fire player and the firepower and the personnel to to get the better of them. So I think that makes it perhaps an even better result than it than it appears. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I saw the Brighton game against Chelsea a few weeks ago, and I and Brighton. I thought, you know, we're excellent that night and um, they're a good team. So I think this is a, a, a really good result. It's one of our better results this season. Yeah, good atmosphere. And uh, we've ended up with uh, well, an interesting draw, Middlesbrough away. We should probably take up residence in the north of England for that period of time, seeing as it falls in the spell of a, you know, clutch of uh, away games up north. Borough are having a really good season. We shouldn't take that lightly. They're playing some nice football at the moment. No, I would agree with that. Okay. Closing thoughts, one positive, one negative. Sai, let's start with you. What's uh, Give us some closing thoughts. Uh, it's good that we're still in a cup where we can win a trophy. I feel that something um, that can inspire the fan base and the, and the team. And a bad... Ooh, something bad. I don't actually have it's to difficult, isn't it? bad for you. Yeah. That's a good... That's a double... So it's a double positive. <laughs> Maybe that diary isn't mm. fit yet. Yeah, um, I don't think it's anything to worry about. But yeah, that's sounds good like spot. That's a good yeah. spot, Milo. So, as I touched on this earlier on, I think my positive is Romero centrally for the criticism we had of it uh, of him playing there. Um, I do think think it's something that gives us options, and it does mean that you know, if Dyer suffers an injury or if Davis suffers an injury, you know, we've got the option of playing you know potentially Dyer at left centre back, 
Romero centrally and Sanchez or playing you know Romero instead of Dyer. So we've got a few options there. And at the close of the window, I was a little worried about uh, you know, the weakness at uh, centre, centre back and left centre back. Um, and my negative, like Simon, I really struggled to find one actually because uh, it was a really, really good performance. I think Mora was a little quiet. And I would say uh, the other one I'd say is, is I think, you know, we did lose control a bit for the kind of first 20 minutes of the of the second half. If we'd been on top for there, then it would have been near, near perfect performance. So you've got to really nitpick to uh, to find fault with that, that game, really. And for, for me, I'm going to take a flip on um, Milo's negative there and say that the positive was that having conceded that goal to Brighton, when they definitely had the momentum, we were then able to up the intensity levels and, and pick it up and score a third goal within a couple of minutes, which really killed it off. Um, only negative for me, um, I don't like looking down at a list of scorers and seeing the word OG on there, so I'd far rather if our second goal had been a pure goal and it had been Emerson's um, goal, or even if Sonny or Kane had nodded in at the back post but um, that's that's as much as I could find in fault of the evening it's a funny one isn't it because their goal took as much of a deflection as uh, Royale's really but it's because of where they're shooting from it's not an own goal and his is absolutely yeah Uh, I mean you've all made great points so I'll try and find something different for both I think the uh, positive for me was seeing Harry score a 25 yarder it's always a positive Mm. it's always a great boost especially on a Saturday night it really was a Saturday night special my negative would be that we still do not convert enough chances uh we should have we should have been four up by the time Brighton scored uh their goal I think and we're still we we need to do better on chance conversion if we want to fulfill all our goals this season in my opinion but it is a game of opinions and we all agree on one thing which is that the 3-1 win against Brighton in the fourth round of the FA Cup on Saturday night was cracking um you know we're now going to touch on the transfer window i'm going to do a little bit of a segue and go back in time that wavy line and i'm going to drag simon into this for a moment because i feel that if there'd been one positive one negative put to you and you'd have been allowed to talk about kulu i would suspect that you would have brought kulu up as a positive so let's kick off the january transfer window in you know give you a two birds with one stone thing if you will here dejang kulisevsky simon the floor is yours, my friend. You've watched him more than I have for sure. I think watched him more than most of us have. Maybe Milo is uh, up there with you. But, you know, give us your overall view of this signing and then, you know, talk a little bit about him during this Saturday night special that we just enjoyed as well. Yeah, I mean, I think for all Swedish uh, Tottenham fans, this is a is a really big deal. Kulo, I would say, together with Isaac, is maybe or certainly are two biggest young and up-and-coming stars. Kulo comes from Stockholm, where I live. He came through a youth system that is kind of famous here in Sweden, called Bromma Pojkena, which is a suburb outside Stockholm. And he went to Atalanta, I think, when he was 15 Mm -hmm. years old. So I think it was around 2016. And then that's when we started to hear about him, uh, because he's, he's got parents that come from uh, Macedonian, but he's born in Sweden. He had the choice between choosing to go with the Macedonian national youth team or with the Swedish youth team. And I remember it was kind of a uh, kind of a debate around that time because he was already making a name for himself. So Dejan Kulsevsky, I know you made a quip about his name and mean being able to tell you how to pronounce it, but actually, just like Slatan Ibrahimovic is not a Swedish name, Dejan Kulusevski is not a it's not a Swedish name at all. It's it's Macedonian, so I can't actually tell you exactly how to how to pronounce it. You're doing a much better job 
you even pronounce Kulu d- uh, properly, <laughs> and I can't. So you're already a lot closer than I'm going to be. <laughs> I think it might be that Eastern Europe thing, but Dejan Kulusevski is how we how we pronounce it. So it's basically how it sounds. And then around 2019, he was loaned from the Atlanta youth system out to Parma. In the first year, I remember he scored a couple of goals. And, you know, every time a Swede, a young Swede plays in Serie A or in Premier League or even the Championship, we hear about it. So that's when he started to kind of make his name in the sense of this could be our next Slatan, which is kind of a lazy comparison, but but still... And I think the next year, the second year, he was loaned out to Parma from Atlanta. He uh, That's when he had his uh, breakout season in Serie A. He scored like 10 goals and uh, had like ten, 7 goals, 10 assists, something like that. And that's when he got mid-season, he got picked up by Juventus and loaned back to Parma. And around this time, I'd say, is when he actually got to know or at least uh, meet or train with uh, Romero. So I think like Golini, Romero, Dejan, and Bentacor have kind of known each other or known of each other, chained together. Because, um, you know, Atlanta has had multiple Juventus, young Juventus players at the loaned out or, you know, cheaply bought from them. So he's playing style. Dejan, I'd say, is a kind of a, he doesn't really fit a mold. He's a big and strong and versatile winger. But he's not a winger in the sense of him wanting to, you know, dribble and and um, score like a Dembele. He's more of a playmaker. In many senses, uh, he reminds me more of Bale, his last years in, mm. in at Spurs. You know, he's smart. He's got a great left foot. He can dribble. He has some explosiveness. He's not slow, but he doesn't really... That's not really his game. He's more of a playmaker. He likes to receive the ball with the uh, and then quickly pass or drift outwards. So in the sense of what he gives us, it's an alternative to, to Lucas, which is a lefty, first and foremost, which gives us all sorts of different types of angles and, and ways we can use him. But also where Lucas likes to drift centrally and make chaos Dejan can do both. He can both um, drive centrally or pass and pass and go. But he also likes to drift more wide, which we saw at, with those, those two um, big chances he created yesterday, where he likes to go outside the, the fullback and then he's really concealed in what he likes to do. He either goes with his weak foot on the outside or he likes to cut in and either sh- shoot or... or, or um, cross with his left yeah i'd say he could play both as a box-to-box midfielder in a three not his ideal position but as a ring winger or as a makeshift striker like a false nine that i would say with like a song or bergwin you know uh, around him that's what he gives us and i'd say conte has you know hinted at him being able to play like an inverted right wing back and we might see that but what he did does help us with is the width, which was, I think, the point with us really wanting a right wing back, having attacking threat on the right, which he helps us with. Mm. Yeah, that's my rant on Dejan. I agree with all of that. I think um, in terms of his performance yesterday, 
He had two key passes, which is the same as Hoybier, Kane and Mora, but obviously he's only playing 20 minutes, whereas Mora's playing 70, the other two played the whole game. Uh, two dribbles, which is equal to Romero, but obviously in less time, so more than anyone else, he saw a lot more of the ball than Mora did. So I think in terms of his performance yesterday, I thought it was pretty promising for a, for a debut. He's been getting a bit of a harsh time on, on Twitter, which I think is a little unfair. I think he might be one of those players that, because of his body shape and the way he runs, people have kind of perceptions about him. I think he's probably quicker than people think. It would be, it'd be interesting to see the first time we get him, to see him in a, in a straight race with someone who we know is quick, so we can actually get a gauge of that. But I think he might be one that um, people criticise because of his body shape. One of the things I think he'll be a real benefit for us with is against teams that sit back because he's uh, good on the ball he's a better passer than the other options on the right um, I think that really helps and the other observation I have I know some of you are talking about him going down the line and being able to use his right or his left but I've also seen him he's run square to the box a fair bit and I thought it was quite interesting that two of the players we were linked with during the window both run um, kind of square to the box or you know, him and then obviously Diaz as well who we'll come on to later on run square to the box and I think that's uh, an interesting option and you might be able to achieve a lot with him that Conte has been trying to do when he's been playing inverted wing backs. Yeah I'd like to just add to that I think two myths that you will see or two talking points or narratives you will see around him is one that he's slow and uh, I'll just give you a stat that I, I um, found a research today or I got from H Monster Funk before the pod. Uh, top speed uh, is a stat that you can find on UEFA. And Kulusevsky's top speed recorded is 20.4 miles per hour. Son, top speed recorded, 21.7 miles per hour. Harry Kane, 19.1 miles. So he's not the quickest. He's not Bergwijn song quick, but he's quicker than... Uh, Kane. The other stat, or the other thing that you'll hear about him, is that he is really. And that thing I would like to add to that is that he's really smart in how he uses his pace. Remember, he's only 21 years old, but he's played in Serie A since he was 18 years old, and he came up in a really tactical uh, setup in in Atalanta. So he's really smart with angles and how he uses his pace. He knows when to go. He knows when to stay. And the the, the second myth is that he he's really left footed which he can look that way because he likes to drive with his left foot. But he has 16 left-footed goals and 10 right-footed goals in his young career. So he, he he's not Lamella. He's not, you know, overly reliant and can only shoot with his left foot. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I did proper idiot in the pub stuff in preparation for for um, Kulisevsky joining us by looking at a clip of him on, a compilation clip of him on YouTube where he, he looked and it very much actually it matches up to what you've just said there, Simon, that he was really good at bursting pass plays. So definitely there is some, there's some speed there. And then having that in mind, I was perhaps a little bit disappointed yesterday when he didn't seem to have that same dynamic burst that Lucas Moura or Bergwin does. And it's again, devil's in the detail. So um, whilst his distance, his speed over distance might, be um, comparable with with Sonny and Kane as the examples I guess it's another thing about speed over two or three yards mm. is, is, is important the other thing that I, th- I just think it's really significant with um, Kulisevsky is just to point out how young he is so if you look down the list of the Spurs squad at the moment and you list them by age order which I've got in front of me at the moment he is over a year younger than Jaffet Tanganga 
He's younger than Toby Amoli. He is three weeks older than Ryan Sessegnon, who we still consider to be something of a pup. And then um, then Oliver Skip is the next one down. So this is a very young player who's already played 100-plus games in, in Serie A, has played a dozen Champions League games, and has made 20-odd appearances for his, for his country. But what you're getting there is you've got a player who's still got to develop tactically and has still got to be put in the right micro and macro mm-hmm. climate to really get the best out of him. So I, th- I think it'd be a mistake. To, well, none of us would make a judgment on a player based on 22 minutes in a, in the lily white shirt. But I think we've got to be patient with him and we've got to see him in that same development phase as the likes of Sessegnon and Skip. Uh, my instant reaction to uh, Kulisevsky uh, at the stadium was when I looked at the front of the programme and thought, crikey, there is actually a Gary Doherty lookalike. <laughs> that's come from Sweden that was stunning to me to see a player that looked like Gary Doherty in a Spurs shirt no one's joining me on that one Oh dear, what a miserable <laughs> lot you are, Gordon Bennett. Okay, um, well, secondly, I think you've, you've pretty much uh, said what I was going to say there, Gareth. What I will add is he looks like a glider as opposed to a sprinter. I think we're all going to have to get used to that. Um, he's going to glide around and pass people. Um, and I do think that the couple of misplaced passes he made there, which were quite key ones, I felt, but that was purely down to nerves. And uh, it should be remembered that he did actually roll a ball beautifully. Uh, across the box that and any other day would have been uh, would have hit the target except poor old Stevie Bergwijn you know he sort of hit some poor fellow halfway up the uh, the park lane there which was a little unfortunate otherwise the lad would have probably ended the night with an assist you know I, I think he looks both mercurial and enigmatic um, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, to seeing which of those elements comes to light. But he's certainly going to be very useful for Conte. And I think that's the one thing that we, and we'll get into that with the second um, signing of the window as well. You know, these are players that Conte obviously trusts more than the players that went out. And so on that basis alone, um, he is going to be a fine addition uh, to the squad. Uh, for the rest of the season. And Simon, uh, uh, the last word on Kulisevsky. Gareth, I think you made some really good points about explosiveness and, and how you use your body. Two things. I think at the end of the game, remember, he, he's so mature and he's played a Euros and he was on the bench for a World Cup. He, and he's been in it in this really tactical, you know, Atlanta setups and he was 16, 15 years old. When it's 20 minutes left on a game and you lead, he's not just going to burst down and, 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 and lose his head. He's not Lucas in that way. He's really smart. He's really intelligent and he's really hardworking and disciplined. And the other part is, yeah, he might not have, you know, that burst that, that we saw from Bergwijn when he passed the defender on like one or two meters. See, I sound Swedish. I say meters. But what he, what you will see is how he uses his body. He actually talked extensively about this in an interview he did early on in his career about the the difference between Swedish youth system and Atlanta. And what he kind of talked about is how quick the pace of the game was and how he learned how to use his body. And he's actually smart in the way he does it. He does it kind of like Kane. He, he's really good at putting him, his body between himself and the ball. And because he's so big and kind of awkward looking, when he dribbles, because he's kind of a good dribbler, he's good at tricking a defender by, you know, shifting his body and kind of not disguising what, what he's going to do. When people actually think he's, like I saw Alistair Gold today talk about him 
always cutting in on his left. He he's good at tricking mm-hmm. you into thinking that's always what he's going to do. So that helps him at beating people out wide. I think I saw a comment from him this week saying exactly that. It, it, he likes to make people think that he's always going to do one thing and he'll do the other, and then um, and then you know play the ball with his right. So I think he's aware of that, and I think. Yeah, it might take a little while for us to see it, but um, it's there and it's, it's in his locker. In his locker it is. And also in our locker is another great signing, Rodrigo Bentenker. Guys, I want to get into this. I thought it was an, an impressive uh, debut. Such an assured and calm and smooth looking player on the ball. Milo, pick up on the point of Rodrigo Bentenker's debut for us on Saturday night and uh, tell us what you thought. Yeah, I would say, I mean, just a bit of background on him. I think he's a really interesting signing in that we've got, you know, four central midfielders now who can all play the six or eight role. So I think in terms of options there, that's that's quite good. And I think we could play any a combination of any two or potentially any three and it would work. So we've got that uh, flexibility there. He's got a decent range of passing. You know, he's, he's not... Um, a creative midfielder as people keep you know again banging the drum for but I don't think there's a place for that necessarily within Conte's system um he's very very composed on the ball particularly under pressure which is something I thought we really saw yesterday you know it was a joy to see him uh receive the ball in you know tight spaces with people closing him down because he's got that you know one or two touches and a nice pass out of trouble I think everyone trusted him immediately yesterday didn't they and you know, similarly with running, I think uh, you know you're not going to see him dribble the length of the pitch. But again, he's got a nice, um, uh, you know, he can dribble out of out of pressure, dribble out of trouble. So I think you know, again, yesterday we saw that he's a smart player. He's you know he's strong, um, you know, physically impact. I think he's six foot three, really good technique. I don't think we're going to have to be wait wait too long for him to be um, a regular starter. I think. And my suspicion is is that it's going to be Skip that loses out, and it's going to be Hoybier and Benton Kerr as our, our first choice midfield pairing. Yeah, really impressed. That, folks, is as close as you're going to get to a definitive prediction from Milo, who famously shies away from predicting or, or being edged on anything. You have it there; it's stamped. He's telling you. Benton Core and Hoybier are going to be our starting midfield. And I, I, for one, look forward to seeing if that unfolds, if only because it is the first time I've heard him commit to a prediction. Gareth, Simon, your thoughts on uh, on this impressive uh, debut? Yeah, very, very assured performance. We needed someone to come in and just shore things up. It sounds a little bit trite to say, but that's exactly what we needed at that point. Uh, this is clearly a very, very accomplished player who's played at the very highest level in, you know, in Italy. He's only 24, but um, I, th- I think going into a game against most teams in the Premier League isn't going to phase him. Uh, I just think he's a he's a really good option for us to have. We'll have to see how well he adapts to the Premier League. I I would say I'd be fairly confident of him from from what I've heard of him from people who have watched him over a number of years. They say he's going to be a bit of a steady Eddie. He's going to be your seven out of ten every week possibly you might hit a few a few eights possibly even the odd nine here or there but you know what you're going to get with him and I, th- I think he's a good addition to the squad because I think he's exactly the sort of player that fits into Conte's system I think it's another example of putting a good square peg into a good square hole so just picking up briefly on that kind of his experience at Juve you've got to bear in mind you know before he went to Italy he was at Boca Juniors and he's appeared in you know Copa Libertadores uh, finals he's got a wealth of he's 24 years old he's got a wealth of experience in some really really tough environments at top clubs now, having been to the Bombonera and I'm, I'm not sure if any of you ever I've been to the Bombonera and uh, yeah that is 
you've got to have some to play for that side because that is live or die territory for Boca Juniors. And, and, and As a teenager. He, yeah, yeah. And he had that moment where he did, and we were talking about it before, where he had that little bit of uh, f- you know, foot trickery on the edge of our own box, pass out. And then he's just looking at the rest of the side and he's like, okay, bring it down. Bring it down. I was like, oh, I like this. This square peg in this square hole likes, he likes to, you know, he's not afraid to talk to the rest of his teammates. And, uh, and oh, look. So, but once again, Si, uh, last word here on, on Bentacle. I mean, I think you guys covered it all. I, I, I think, I don't know how many people watched the Uruguay game mm. and the night after he was signed, but because he played 70 minutes and you got a really good sense of, and I mean, I've seen him in Juve, but it's not like you watch a player when they play like that if you're not particularly interested in that player. But he's so intelligent in his positioning. And he's so calm and he's he's kind of like um, Romero in the sense that he kind of intercepts the ball. He knows where it's going, the next pass. Yeah, great. Yeah. He's a great passer. He's defensively solid, hard worker, leader, communicator, good technique, uh, under pressure, maturity, three times uh, champion with Juve, only 24, never injured. I'm reading through a list <laughs> just to make sure uh, I get everything. The second point I'd, I'd say is, uh, just to stone, zoom out to the, to the transfer window, because you can think when you hear us say all these great things, you can go, why did you want to sell him? And we see all these great things about, um, Kulusevsky and you go, why did they sell him? And then you also go, you hear, have this narrative around Paratici that he went back to his old club and, you know, just brought two players he already bought. But the truth is because Juventus bought Lahovic, they had to kind of move players on. And in Allegri's system, these were the two guys that, you know, we were lucky enough to have a director of football who kind of had an inside track because they were not thrown away because they're bad players. I'd say we got to really important squad players that could both be in the squad and can start. And we got them because another club wanted to go another direction. Uh, two incredible young prospects that will prosper in this system and under this coach. We're we're we're, we're lucky. So I mean, last time you were on, we were talking about feeder clubs and Standard Liège being a potential feeder club for us. I didn't realize at that point that it could be Juve who were our European feeder club, <laughs> and uh, we were parking our young talent at before snapping them all up. <laughs> and I mean, like this is how it should be: uh, two players that Juventus, uh, you know. Which Manchester United like fan base are tired of is our uh, are our saviors. That's absolutely right. You might have done us and cheated us, in my opinion, out of uh, out of the the Champions League in 2017. But we have now made you our feeder club, Juventus, and never forget that. <laughs> Very well called. Yes, and uh, and I think we've we I think we've summed up Bentoncourt perfectly. Bentoncourt, a man who can read the game as well as Morgan Freeman can read an audio book. Welcome to Tottenham Hotspur. Um, we should uh, we should address a couple of the other issues in the transfer window that were popping up all over the place, both in our minds and on the inevitable uh, social media. Um, we failed to strengthen at right wing back or uh, or centre forward. They were meant to be priority positions. Gareth, I am going to spin the dial at you and ask how much of a failure is this? Uh, or do we just put it down to January being a difficult window to do business uh, as as Steve Hitchens said, and was slated for. I think we all know that it's it's been mentioned so many times. January is a very difficult window to try and do business in, and yeah, we would 
we would all have had a look at right wing back as a priority position and just maybe there just weren't the players that were available that we thought were of good value for us at the point. I mean, I didn't hear us getting linked with many players that we then failed to sign. So I don't think there would have been having got got rid of or having released four players who didn't fit into Conte's plans. And we know that there are other members of the squad who aren't up to the standard that we need that we bought in previous windows. There'd have been nothing worse than buying someone for the sake of it who might have played well in three or four games. And then in two or three windows time, we were desperately trying to offload again to allow us to get someone else in. So um, I think that... I, th- I, th- I think that if Conte can do some work with um, Royale and, and, and Doherty and get the best, best out of them for the rest of the season, then then that's absolutely fine not to have signed a right wing back. Uh, Centre forward, that's not a particular failing of this window alone. It's been a it's been a failure of the last seven or eight windows that we've not been able to bring anyone in who's a who's a who's a foil for Harry Kane. And it does seem to be a very unique position um, that Spurs find themselves in, where they can't get forwards. I mean, um, if if Milo and I had been on the um, on the scouting books at Spurs, we would have uh, pointed out Julian Alvarez, who uh, Manchester City had snapped up, who looks like he'd be a great signing, and he's probably exactly the right sort of age and mm. profile, and for about fifteen billion quid, looks like he could be great value. But yeah, we're in a position where we can't afford to get many more transfers wrong, and I think the only way that we would have got a right wing back or a centre forward in this window would have been paying well, well over their asking price to have done it, and that may well of course there's more problems down the line so I, I think we've done well over the, the window to to get rid of the um, the excess that we had in the squad and say largely we've now got a squad that's full of square pegs for square holes. Steph can I just barge in here and push you out of the way and just mm. take the chair for a moment and ask you a question mm. um, <laughs> I was, I, I was going to suggest that we spent a second on some of the ones that we were linked with and uh, and got away and I know it's something that has been on your mind certainly towards the end of the window. So uh, what do you think happened with uh, Luis Diaz and Adama Traore? And I think particularly with Diaz, you know, I know that you were kind of vexed by how, you know, how that got out and some of the talking about it. So, you know, maybe take that as a a second part of the question. Yeah, I'm going to ask, well, I'll start with the second part first. I mean, first of all, I, I personally believe that Luis Diaz would have been an excellent signing for us. I don't think he was a priority. I don't think anyone had him on their radar. But I think when you have the opportunity to sign a player like that, especially with the qualities that Conte looks for in a forward, uh, an attacking player, I think he would have been superb. There is the issue of him and Sonny liking to play off the same side. I'm always of the opinion that number one you can never have too many brilliant forwards at a football club they will either you know have to rotate and push each other for you know for for the places or the manager will find a way to fit them in um i think he would have been an excellent addition for us and wow imagine having even if you play a 3-5-2 and one of those has to sit imagine having that player as an option off the bench crikey um i think you know what happened with him it seems to me that we had an opportunity to sign him. We didn't take advantage of the sliver of time we had. Uh, we possibly didn't approach the deal with quite the the verve and blood, you know, that we should have. Um, there are rumours that, well, I mean, I think it's pretty well established that we were dealing with George Mendes as a representative of Pordo when we probably should have been dealing with the agent of the player himself as well as the club directly. And somewhere in there, it's got out, you know. And, you know, the the agent, I think, and the club have both said, "Okay, thanks very much for doing our work for us. We're now going to turn around to the club that have been tracking him for ages and uh, and see what they can do. And Liverpool, having tracked the player for ages, once they say, yes, we're going to sign you in this window, the player's only going to go one place. I don't think we can complain 
about Liverpool in this at all. I think it's solely down to us. Port had an agreement with Liverpool that they would tell them of any bids that were accepted. So I think they were obliged to do that. So uh, I'm not sure that if we'd acted quicker, that changes anything because Porto still would have had to tell Liverpool. Yeah, it's all murky water, but as I understand it, there was mm. a slip. And, and look, it's all murky water and nobody's ever going to truly know what happened, what happened there. Uh, but I, it's my feeling that we could have put that deal away. Perhaps that's my wanting it to have happened. Perhaps that's uh, my you know, being overcritical. Who knows? I, I think we were trying to pull a fast one, weren't we? Because Liverpool were intending to sign him in the summer. And right. I thought, I think we thought that if we moved quickly, we might be able to get him now when Liverpool was sleeping. One just kind of word of caution on him. Um, I mean, he, he's had an excellent season, but this is a breakthrough season. So this season, he's played 18 games, scored 14 goals and got five assists. But the year before... It was 30 games, six goals, five assists. Before that, 29, six goals, five assists. Before that, 13, two, two. It, this is a bit of a breakout. And I do wonder... Harry Kane had one of those uh, runs once. Yeah, but he's a lot older, isn't he? He's 25. So it, this is this breakthrough is happening a bit later on. Uh, the, I mean, I, th- I think it's interesting that you, you kind of mention a, a Spurs striker. Vincent Janssen was the one I was thinking of, uh, signing someone off of, off the back of a, peak, a great season. I could well be wrong. Answering the second part of your question, um, with the Dharma Traore, I think it's very, very clear that this is a player that was, I well, I say clear to me, doesn't seem like Conte was fussed one way or another. It seems like he's a total Paratici obsession. I think Paratici really wanted him. I think when the whole we can convert him into a right wing back uh, chitter chatter started, I didn't see it. I still don't see it. Uh, I think he's very much the player he is. I don't think he's coachable as a right wing back Mm. myself. Now watch Barcelona convert him to one and uh, win the Europa League and then win the Champions League next season. So I'm getting my dozen eggs ready to put on my face. But anyway, that's my read on it. And I think it's very simple. I think that Conte was probably turned around and said, look, we've only got a finite amount of cash that we can deal with and resources and so on and so forth in this window. Don't put them there. Put them Mm. here. (laughs) It <laughs> seems very straightforward to me. And so having convinced myself, well, initially I wasn't excited about it, as you know. Then I sort of convinced myself he could work and started waffling on in a few pods ago about, well, if you have him, he could attack the, you know, the 10 yards in a deep sitting defense. He could get in there and bubbly, bubbly barn, like, you know, gone around in circles. And now I'm going to go back to my original position, which is well, I'm <laughs> sort of OK with him not being there. So <laughs> it's all good. No problem there. <laughs> your, your last point there, uh, Stefan, mm. really connects the first to the question which is our failings i think one thing that it's so easy to forget in this hype is that we're always working with secondhand information which is to say we don't know what the day-to-day conversations are between paratici and conte so stuff that you know a journalist picks up as a need then becomes repeated and repeated and repeated and then becomes the narrative and then it takes over and then all of a sudden we we're going to die if we don't mm. get the right wing back uh, add you know conte you know playing the theater of the of the of the window which is he's complaining and he's making clear what he wants because he wants to put pressure on the club that's his job he doesn't know that this this particular fan base is traumatized by by uh, windows past so we overreact and and start, you know, with this thing of he's going to leave. I never overreact to anything. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm basically talking 
<laughs> this part is about Twitter, basically. No, but um, so I overreacted. Don't, don't, don't worry, mate. You didn't. You did not. You did not see me what going off and throwing my handbags about us not getting Diaz. Trust me. Trust me. I'm no better than those I criticise sometimes. So don't worry about that. Diaz is someone that we, you know, we went for, but that was not talked about in the media, which shows you how little we know. And then we get you know, a midfielder and a right, right winger and Conte says, I'm really pleased yeah. because we now we're more balanced. Okay. Then what is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, it's a great, it's a Just great like point. All yeah. of us, we, ha- we, we go to work and we have meetings and we're trying to make the project work or whatever it is. And every day, what we're trying to do change. It's so easy to, to kind of get lost in whatever was two, three weeks ago. Mm. So with that said, basically I think, we kind of got out of this window stronger, not by this, the way we thought we were going to do, but basically by making the squad mm. smaller and getting players we didn't think we were going to get from, you know, Pratici's old job, which was, I don't think, anyone's prediction before uh, the window started. So basically, this is all pretend and everyone should relax <laughs> and be happy and love each other. No, I think that's a great point, Simon. We we really don't know, and that is that you know that's that's the bottom line. Uh, we don't know what happened. This is this is all based on conjecture. And I think when we look at the squad, uh, we just we must remember the outgoings. Um, you know, we did move on uh, three players, uh, admittedly on loan, but still we got we moved them on and we sold Deli Alley, which is you know it's very good business all told. Um, and there has been you know mentioned in the fan base that you know ah oh, these are creative players and look what, who's come in. But the bottom line is these are players that Antonio Conte did not trust. If the manager doesn't trust them, then they're not going to get used. And if they're not going to get used, they're taking up space. So essentially, we've gained two very, very solid, young, exciting uh, and useful players for Antonio Conte. And so I would think that in uh, you know, a binary sense, we have a stronger squad for the manager because they're all now players that the manager will use. And the dressing room is where he wants it to be, both in terms of mm-hmm. attitude and in numbers and who he can use, as we just said. As Gareth very well put, square pegs and square holes. We've got, we've got loads of them now. Um, so, you know, that final point, I think, must fall on Paratici's work in this window. How did he do? Uh, Milo, Gareth, Simon in that order. Three, two, one. Milo starts. As I just said, uh, Paratici worked his uh, Afida club and brought in two really good young players. Um, I think there's probably a little disappointment that uh, we didn't look further afield. But, you know, it's a difficult window. Uh, the our direct competitors for a slot for fourth did worse in the window than we did. So overall, I mark that up as a, as a win. And I think the real test for him is in the summer. He's had two difficult windows so far. You know, he came in late in the summer and then obviously January's a nightmare. So the, I'm reserving judgment on him to the summer, but he's brought in two good players and that's a bonus. Yeah, can't really disagree with that. Um, I think it's very easy to be reactive. I guess if Kane gets injured, God forbid, and we don't score many goals for a few weeks, then then it'll be on Paratici that we didn't sign a forward. Or perhaps if uh, Memerson, Royal and Doherty between them don't get an assist or a goal or contribute going forwards this year, that'll be something that will go against him. But yeah, I, I think he's got rid of players that were, were superfluous to what we needed and what Conte wanted. And potentially we've got two good players who were, who were better than what we had in those positions to those covers. So if I look at the squad now, I think it looks fairly lean. I, I think for a January which, where there are plenty of caveats anyway, he's, he's done pretty well. Yeah, I'll, I'll just uh, jump in and agree with everyone. I think he did well. I think in the budget year, straight after COVID, let's not forget where where uh, I'm guessing the budget is still kind of you know affected by 
as not having a lot of revenue last year. He got us uh, a lot lighter and ready to uh, do big things in the summer. Let's not forget Celso, Ndombele, Devi. That's almost, I think, three, four hundred thousand a week, uh, mm. not on the wage bill. Um, and if they, Celso and Ndombele gets also sold with those options, that's 70, 60 million that we get in to invest in other, in other positions. So six months in, good job. Mm. Excellent. So we've covered it all. We finally got through Brighton and the transfer window. We're going to stay on the South Coast because on Wednesday night, well, staying on the South Coast via the mighty White Hart Lane, because on Wednesday night we are at home to Southampton. I'm just going to ask two simple questions, two very quick answers, if we could, please, from each of you. And uh, let's go in reverse order this time. We'll go Simon, Gareth, Milo. Uh, who should play and are we confident? Simon, kick us off. Uh, let's hope Skip is back. Let's hope Dyer is back. Uh, I'd play Skip and Hoiberg. Uh, and I'd start the same eleven. Other than that, confident. Hmm. I'm very confident. Three-one. Uh, yeah, for me, I think Southampton are a very ordinary side. I think, particularly at home, we should be confident we could beat them. We, we really should have beaten them down at their place when we had a couple of goals disallowed quite harshly. Um, I, th- I think for lineup, the team for me mostly picks itself. I think we probably need to experiment with the right combinations in midfield for the two central positions. I, I think that the pecking order is probably Hoiberg, Bentoncourt, Skip and, and Winks probably in that mm-hmm. order, but it, it may be that you get slight nuances depending on, on which combination play together. I would expect that Lucas would keep his place in the front three alongside Kane and Son but hopefully Kulu's going to put him under pressure. Otherwise I think Reggie and Royal are our first choice uh, wing backs and I think that um, that, that Romero, Dyer and Davis will be our, our preferred back three. I think overall we've got 18 league games left. We've got to try and win 12 of them. We, we, we do that and we'll pick up a couple of draws and we'll, we'll be in the top four and these are, or certainly Southampton has got to be the first of those 12 wins. Yeah, Gareth said it all. I've got nothing to add. Agree, agree on the first choice sides. I agree on the order of midfield. I agree on the number of wins and draws we need and I think we're going to get them and I think we'll get the first one against Southampton yeah I think we're going to win 3-1 I think we're going to see Eric Dyer return to the centre of defence I think we'll see Romero move to the right and uh, I do think we're going to rotate one of our central midfielders who knows I'm not in Antonio's head but I do think that Harry Winks will probably be the one who gets a rest 3-1 yeah absolutely and so let's repeat the same formula uh, for looking at the Wolves game which follows next Sunday once again at home and to finish out in our very ordered podcast, let's go in the first order we had. Milo, Gareth, Simon, who should play and are we confident? Again, you know, I think Wolves are having a good season. I think, yeah, I think that they're a decent team. Um, we shouldn't underestimate them. I, But we're hitting form and are also a really decent side. So I expect us to win this. I'd, I'd expect to see a little bit of rotation between these games. We've got some games, you know, um, hot on the heels of each other. So, you know, whoever's, you know, go closest to the team who doesn't start on Wednesday probably starts this one. It kind of depends on how how bad um, Skip and Dyer's tweaks are. I suspect as to whether they start on Wednesday and if you know whether they start this one. Um, maybe this is the game where Benton Kerr or Kulu get their get their debut or their yeah you know, their first start. They would have had a you know a week and a bit training with the sides. So that's a possibility. Yeah, tough game. I think I think we'll win. Uh, we need to because we're away from home a lot of uh, a lot after that. So uh, picking up those home wins becomes important. 
Yeah, I mean, Wolves will present a different challenge to Southampton. They are the third lowest goal scorers in the Premier League this year. They've only scored 19 in 21 games, but they've also got the second meanest defences, having only conceded 16. So I think that there may be a few um, changes that we'll need in, the, in our approach play. I think as a fan base, we've got to be prepared for the fact that if we don't score in the first 10 minutes, there's a very good chance that it might still be goalless going into the last half hour. And we'll need to keep our patience about us and we'll need to keep our wits about us. And, and um, I'm sure ultimately we'll... If our front three are on form, then we'll create enough chances eventually to win the game. But I suspect it'll be a very, very tight one. They always are against Wolves. We've never done the double over them in the Premier League era. And having one away at the start of the season, we've got the opportunity to do that. But yeah, a 1-0 win with a with a sort of cliche goal off someone's backside in the 89th minute would be absolutely fine against Wolves. I'm going to start mine with a question to Gareth. Gareth, uh, the possession stats for Wolves, do you think we will have possession or them? Do you know what? Having given you the stats about how many goals they've scored and conceded this year, which is fairly sort of surface level stats, I'm not sure what they're like in terms of possession. So I'm not sure if they're like AVB side in that they keep lots of possession but don't do much with it or whether they're a team that sit back that's probably one that Milo will know know better than me I think being at home we probably will shade the possession and my instinct tells us it's one of those games where we've we've just got to be a little bit patient yeah because because the thing is I think a weekend bent on course starts same back line I do feel like we might see um Bergwijn in this one because it because my perception of Wolves is they don't score but they are good on the ball and they keep possession somewhat. So we might be counterattacking and and uh, Lucas might not play this one. Bentagor, I think, will play for start. I have, I'm having a hard time. Uh, I don't think Conte rotates that much. I think he kind of sticks with his um, with his lineup, but then likes to um, uh, you know make early subs. So let's say Lucas and Son starts this one too, but um, Bergwijn and Kulu comes in just like uh, yesterday. Wolves' average um, possession away from home is 45%, so probably about the same oh, okay. Probably about the same as we're doing on average. So anyone's guess. Right. Well, you'll be surprised to know that I have a statistical take on this game. I was at the lane in 1982 when the West Stand was being built and we played Wolverhampton Wanderers and we absolutely thumped them 6-1. Ricky Villa, Garth Crooks, what a performance, what a wonderful day. And I'm going to say, because... I will be at the lane 40 years later in a February game against Wolves that we're going to thump them 6-1. If you ask me how it's going to happen, I can't tell you. If you ask me who's going to rotate in and out, I wouldn't know because Antonio knows. I do suspect that everyone is right. I think that the you know the fixture list dictates that we're not going to see the same side you know thrice, if you will. But I'm going to tell you there'll be no dodgy goals off arses and, uh, and all that. I'm going to go for the big one. We are due to unload on someone. Harry is hitting form. It would shock everyone if we do it to Wolves because they are a good side, yada, yada, yada. So I'm going for a mighty 6-1 to celebrate the last 6-1 over Wolves at the lane 40 years ago. I wasn't going to tell you this, Steph. I've organised a whip round and we've hired loads of spaniels uh, to line the route from the station (laughs) to the stadium for you to pet along the way. With um, have you got people with whiskey on the other side? I have, yeah. I've, I've got some. I've got some gentlemen oh. with Irish whiskey oh. after every petting stop. Oh. I'm going to bet my house <laughs> six one. Then. My, so yeah, my fucking god, Sunday can't come quickly enough. <laughs> 
Oh, dear. And you're going to hear all about it next week because we're going to be back to discuss all this stuff. Uh, uh, the games against Southampton and Wolves and my Spaniel petting and whiskey drinking that Milo, uh, that Milo has sorted out. And I will be looking for that en route to the game. Anyway, thank you very much, lads. Excellent. Cheers, Good work. Cheers, Seth. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, so give us a follow and say hello. If you like the pod, please tell your friends and leave us a glowing review on iTunes or Spotify. As always, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Come on, you Spurs.